if you're going on a journey, on a long journey, you prepare the luggage to make sure that you have all that you need for the trip. If you have guests coming over to visit or to stay for a longer time at your house, whether it's close friends or uh, family, um, you prepare the house, uh, putting things in order, vacuuming, making sure that the bathroom is clean. You prepare. If you have a test coming, students, what are you supposed to do? To prepare for the test, and you know what that involves usually, right? Um, older saints, if you are approaching retirement, what are you doing? You are preparing for retirement. Well, hopefully you start preparing for retirement before you approach retirement. But you get in the, in the preparation for that stage of life. Um, those of you who are thinking about uh, selling a cow, so perhaps you've experienced that in the past, uh, anyone who's thinking about selling a house, the preparation for that practice is way more intense uh, than, uh, than other things like just having guests over uh, because you want to make a good impression on the potential buyer. Realtor agents make suggestions on what to change uh, in a house in order to make the house prepared to sell. Uh, there are teams that specialize in staging the house so that it looks as attractive as possible. And whenever those teams of staging come and deal with a house, you, as an owner, you really have to let them do whatever they want, uh, rearrange stuff in the house in order to make things more attractive. Why? Because selling a house uh, involves a lot of preparation. We, for different experiences of life, we sort of know intuitively Hey, if I'm going to do this, I need to prepare for it, and I know what that preparation involves. But I wonder if we know what kind of preparation is involved in waiting and preparing for the coming of Christ, which is a way more important event than just having some friends over or just going on a long journey or just taking a trip or taking a test or um, even selling a house. Do we know what is involved in preparing for the coming of Christ. The last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, closes with a conclusion that focuses on not only the message that Jesus is coming again, but it encourages us to consider carefully what is involved in preparing for His coming. Are you aware that the Bible informs us how to prepare for the coming of Christ? Well, let's, uh, let's look at that passage, Revelation 22, verses 6 through 21. Uh, if you are new to our congregation, if you're visiting for the first time, uh, you may find this passage in our Pew Bibles on uh, page number 1042. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to grab the Pew Bibles uh, and take it home with you to have it and to study, to read it. Um, also, as you turn your Bibles there, um, we are now at the last sermon of the book of Revelation in this series. We have been at it for 28 sermons. This is the 29th sermon. If you'd like to go back and listen to previous sermons, they are online. We'd love for you to do that. Um, this, prep, this ending sermon is really part two of the ending sermons we started last week. Uh, we looked at the first part of the conclusion, and today we're looking at the second part of the conclusion. Here is God's word for us as we consider how to prepare for the second coming of Jesus. 
This is the word of the Lord. Revelation 22, verse 6. And he, referring to the angel, and he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I'm coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evil doer still do evil. Let the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do righteous, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life, and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs, and sorcerers, and the sexually immoral, and murderers, and idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The Spirit and the bride say, Come! And let the one who hears say, Come! And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for our hearts. Would you pray with me, asking God to bless the preaching of his word in our hearts as we hear it. Father, as we approach the last words of the book of Revelation and the last words that are inscribed in the scriptures that you have inspired for our benefit, Father, we pray that as we hear these words, that we may take them to heart. Give us hearts to hear and hearts to understand and hearts that are willing to put it into practice, to respond in in ways that benefit our souls for all eternity. Father, we pray that you would speak to our hearts for the glory of Christ and in his power and in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. We are approaching and literally closing the book of Revelation. Some have asked, so what's, what are we going to do next? We're going we're gonna to take a little break from uh, a scripture series or a series through a book of scripture and work through a topical sermon series for the next five weeks. And after the five weeks are over, if the Lord keeps us alive, if he doesn't return back, 
we are going to begin the book of 1 Samuel. Um, that's going to be five or six weeks from today. Between now and that time, we're going to approach two topics uh, that are topical, um, and we're going to look at various passages that speak to these topics. And those topics are going to be pursuing sexual purity and battling anger. Those are going to be the two topics that we're going to cover for the next five weeks. I encourage you to join us as we will uh, look at these two topics over the next five weeks. But this morning, we are preparing and considering what is involved in the preparation for the coming of Christ. The conclusion to the book of Revelation reassures us of the truthfulness and the trustworthiness of the words of this prophecy. The words of this book are God's divine words that we should not tamper with, as we have seen in, in verse uh, 18 and 19, as we were told in, in verse uh, 6 as well, that these words are true and trustworthy. They inspire trust. Uh, they inspire us to build our lives on what they reveal. So the conclusion of this book uh, repeats for us why we should consider these words carefully. They are God's words. They are true and trustworthy. But the conclusion of this book also reminds us and tells us, repeats for us the message, Jesus is coming again. He's coming back. He's coming soon. And the concluding verses of, of Revelation close with five pointers of how to prepare for the coming of Christ. We looked at the uh, first of those five points of how to prepare for the coming of Christ last week. Uh, the first point is, uh, and we looked at it, keep what is revealed in this book. Remember how the book of Revelation started? In chapter 1, verses 1, 2, and 3. Uh, in verses 3, we saw the, the first blessedness, the first utterance of blessing that is given in this book. There's, by the way, there are seven blessings in the book of Revelation. The first one, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it for the time is near. John expected that those who received the book of Revelation in the ancient times would actually read it out loud in their worship service. Read the whole thing through. So, wow, that must have taken a long time. It just takes about an hour and ten minutes. How do we know that? We've actually done it on a Friday night here a few weeks ago. Uh, about 20, 25 of us gathered on a Friday night just to read the book of Revelation from the beginning to the end. It took about an hour and ten minutes. Um, and so John expected that the book would be read in a church service. So at the beginning of the reading, he pronounces, blessed is the one who reads. I mean the speaker who would actually read the book. Blessed are those who hear and keep what is in it. That's how the book started. To let them know that the hearing of this book and, and, the, and the responding to it is very important. And even just the act of, of reading is a blessed thing. But then at the end of the book, he finishes the speaker who's reading, is about to be done reading. The hearers who are, who are hearing this book read are about to be done hearing because it's the end of the conclusion. So what is left? The blessing is no longer for those who read and hear because that's about to be done. The blessing is only mentioned for those who keep the words written in this book. At the end of the book, the, we are told, blessed is the one who keeps. To keep means to, to receive what we have heard, 
and to let the teaching of what we have heard shape our lives, to pursue a life of obedience to what we have been told by God. So the first way to prepare for the coming of Christ is to keep the words written in this book, receive them, and allow them to shape our lives. Well, all that was mentioned last week. This is just a review. Today, we're going to look at the, 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 four, uh, the remaining four aspects or details or clues that we get in this passage of what is involved in preparing for the coming of Christ. And if you like taking notes, here are the four things that we're going to cover today. But remember, these are points two, three, four, and five, because they are the, the four things added to the one we talked about last week. So the four things we're going to cover today, what is involved in the, in the preparation for the coming of Christ? Worship God alone. Worship God alone. The third, that was the second, right? Because the first one, keep the words of this book. The second was worship God alone. The third, pursue holiness. Pursue holiness. Uh, the fourth thing involved is have your robes washed. And the fifth part, in, the fifth thing involved is yearn for the return of Christ. Again, the, the math here is a little different because we covered the first point last week, and today we're covering the last four. Let's look at these points this morning. Worship God alone. John tells us how he responded when he received this revelation. Look at verse 9. When I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. John tells us that when he heard all that the angel revealed to him, communicated to him from God on behalf of, of God, John was so moved by what he heard that it led him to fall down and worship the messenger that communicated this truth. But the angel prohibits uh, to be worshipped, prohibits John to be worshipped because the angel is another fellow creature like John, like the prophets, and like those who keep the words of this book. So the angel has to correct John in his own worship. Now, think about it. This is, the, this is the Apostle John. At the end of hearing all the revelations that he has heard so far in this book, did John not know that he must worship God alone? Of course he knew. He was told in the book earlier, in chapter 14, that God alone must be worshipped. So what is John doing here? Well, the glory of the messenger was so high that even John fell down to worship that which is actually not God. John had the right information about God, and yet he too falters and worships a created being. Friends, does it surprise you that John is so transparent with us with his misguided worship? He could have skipped this detail. He could have skipped this detail. And not tell us about it. And not tell us about his failure to, to worship. That he fell in the trap of worshiping something other than the one true God. But he doesn't. He tells us that he fell for it. And he fell for it twice. This is the second time when it happens in this book. And why, is he, why is he telling us this? Because he wants us to know how important it is for us to be vigilant in worshiping God alone and nothing else. Friends, if John fell in the trap of worshiping a created being, 
What does that say about us? John tells us of both accounts in order to emphasize the angel's message that we must worship God and God alone. Even in a, such an experience as, 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 as the revelation between an angel and, and John, we might say it's a, it's, a, it's a spiritual experience. Even a spiritual experience, John was able to falter and, and worship something other than the true God. Friends, is it possible that we can fall for worshiping idols even in a church service? Is it possible that even in, the, in a spiritual experience, when we think we're, we're worshiping God, we're actually worshiping something other than God? We can, we can fall for it in various ways. An easy way people do it these days is, have you heard the phrase, um, people who worship, worship? For them, it's all about just a, the experience of what they, they have and how the particular singing experience um, is played out. First of all, in a church experience, in a church setting, uh, we should never resume the word worship only for singing. Hearing the word of God, praying, is an act of worship. And so often today, we can fall for, for worshiping something other than God, even in a spiritual experience, because we put our affections, we put our adoration, we put our admiration. People can worship a pastor. People can worship the messenger. People can worship the, the teacher who's bringing the word of God. Friends, be aware how easy it is, even in a spiritual experience, to worship something other than the one true God. John fell for it, and he's reminded, and he tells us a message that the angel taught him twice. Worship God alone. In some ways, the command to worship God alone is a summary of all that the book of Revelation wants us to do. God alone is to be worshipped. And throughout the book of Revelation, the, the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet have all concerted together, joined together in this unholy trinity team to make the people of the earth worship something other than the one true God. Oh, friends, this means that one of the appropriate ways to prepare for the coming of Christ is to be vigilant that we worship God alone. That's the first way uh, that we consider this morning um, uh, of how to prepare for the coming of Christ, to worship God alone. Second of all, persevere or pursue holiness. Persevere or pursue holiness. Look at verses 11, uh, 10 and 11. And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoers still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. You read that carefully? It says, let the evildoers still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy. These are puzzling commands, especially hearing them written in the Bible. Why is Revelation telling evildoers to still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy? By the way, the filthy doesn't refer to physical filth, like, you know, sweaty and dirty and all that. Here, filthy is a picture of describing what sin does to us. Sin stains. Sin, sin in our lives makes us disgusting, filthy. That's what it is. It's not talking about physical filth. It's talking about the, the, the effects of sin in our lives. Let the sinners, let those who are, who are given to, to living a life of sin continue to live a life of sin. 
Isn't the Bible supposed to call those who have rebelled against God to turn away from Him? Well, it is. After all, Isaiah 55, the passage that Pastor Taylor started our service with this morning, um, when it calls for the thirsty to come and drink without price, uh, later in the same chapter, uh, God says in Isaiah 55, 7, Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. This is a kind of call and command we are used to and expect the Bible to give, to, to tell the evildoers, come to the Lord, forsake your evil ways. So what are we supposed to do with Revelation twenty two seventeen? 17? I mean, uh, I'm sorry, um, uh, 11. Is, is Revelation 2, 11 a contradiction with Isaiah 55, 7? It is not, even though on a, on a first appearance it seems to be giving opposite commands. So what, are these com- what, what is Revelation 22, 11 doing? We get some clues when we understand the context. In verse, 11, in verse 10, John is commanded not to seal this book because a time is near. This command is the opposite of what the prophet Daniel was commanded. As a matter of fact, we see some, some resemblance of language between Revelation 22, 10 and 11 and Daniel chapter 12 and the way Daniel, uh, the prophecy of Daniel finished and closed. In the last chapter of the prophecy of Daniel, uh, the prophet Daniel receives these words. But you, Daniel... Shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. And then in verse 9, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly. In other words, even at the time at the end, uh, there will be a distinction between those who are belonging to God and those who do not. Those who continue to purify themselves and those who continue to live in their wicked ways. And that distinction appears here in the book of Revelation, throughout the book, and here at the end. Without the warning, with all the warnings given in the book of Revelation, if people want to continue to live in rebellion and in wicked ways, then Revelation says, Keep doing it. If after you've heard all that is going to happen, if after you've heard all that that we have been warned about, you still want to live in a wicked way, in the filthiness of sin, be my guest. It's It's a rhetorical way of giving a final warning. It's not the only time in the Bible when we hear such commands. Amos chapter 4, verse 4. God says to his people, to his rebellious people, come to Bethel and transgress. Come to Gilgal and multiply, multiply transgression. Again, is the Bible calling people to sin? Is God calling people to sin? No. But when such language is used, it's used in a provocative way. It has a rhetorical effect, a final warning. It's like parents who have young kids Remember the first time your kids uh, were interested in lemons and they wanted to eat of the lemon? And you try to tell your kids, no, don't do it. It's not going to feel good. 
I said, no, I want it, I want it, I want it. And you, at the end of your tr time trying to debate with your kid about not eating lemons, you say, all right, if you really want to have it, go for it. Because nothing I can say will sway you against it. Well, that, the Bible is dealing here not just with lemons. You know, eating a lemon, you may cringe when you eat or when you bite of that for the first time, but, but it's just a lemon. But here what the Bible is dealing with is people who are really thirsty and really wanting to continue to live in sin. And nothing you would say to them would sway them otherwise. Nothing will stop them to continue to live in filthiness. So God says, if you really want it, if you're really thirsty for it, I'll let you have it. The wicked show their wickedness by the fact that they're committed to live in wickedness. In verse 12, Jesus gives us both promise and warning. Behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. If you put verse 12 next to verse 11, where God says, let the wicked still do wicked, let the filthy still live in filthiness, and the next verse says, I'm coming soon, and I'm going to pay everyone for, their, for what they have done. It's a way of saying, listen, if you want to live in wickedness and you really want it, keep doing it, but you'll have to give an account. Jesus is coming back whether or not you want to live in wickedness. He's going to come back and you're going to have to give an account to him. And he's bringing his recompense with him. But notice that verse 11 addresses not only those who want to live in filthiness and evil, but also those who are righteous and holy. To them, God says, and let the righteous still do right, and let the holy still be holy. In other words, don't stop pursuing righteousness. Don't stop pursuing holiness. If the world around us continues to uh, to live in their path of sin and rebellion and, and filthiness and evil, the people of God are commanded to pursue holiness. Uh, dear Christian, the world around us, as we approach the time of the end, may start increasingly laughing or mocking at us for desiring to live in holiness. Let the world be committed to evil, but you continue to be committed to pursuing a life of holiness. In other words, don't let the filthiness of the world around you affect your commitment to live a holy life. Once in a while, I hear immature Christians make a verbal, very bad logic, motivated by a good desire, but with a very bad logic. Here's, here's what they say. They'll say, I don't want to be too holy because I want to influence my non-Christian friends. You know, if, if I really pursue this holiness thing, my, my non-Christian friends will start laughing at me, will start marginalizing me. I'm not going to have any influence with them. So I think, I'm, I think I'll just sort of keep it on a, on a low key when it comes to pursuing holiness so that I can influence my non-Christian friends. Now, the good motivation is you want to influence your non-Christian friends. That is a good motivation. We all should want to have that motivation. We all should want to aspire to do that. But the logic of how to go to do that is really bad. Uh, here's why. Friends, living like the world in its evil ways will not attract the world to follow Jesus, who calls them 
to turn away from their evil ways. It's just, it doesn't work that way. It will only attract us to the world and not really make us attractive to the world in the way that Jesus would want us to be attractive. Friends, the recipe of trying to compromise with the world so that we can be more appealing to the world for the sake of Jesus is just not a good recipe. You say, what about Jesus? Well, Jesus never compromised his holiness. He hanged out with sinners, but he did not commit sin or compromise in his evil way, in any evil way, in order to attract sinners. Friends, living like the world will not make you more attractive for the cause of Jesus. It will only attract us to the world. And if those around us want to continue to live in filthiness of sin, let them do so. But you continue to pursue what is still right and still holy. Friend, if you are a Christian, are there ways in which you are intentionally not persevering, living in holiness? As you consider your Christian life, are you striving to do what is right in the sight of God? Are you striving to, to live in a way that is holy before the Lord? Friends, a commitment to live a holy life is one of the indistinguishable characteristics that God has given us a new heart. So let the righteous still do right, and let the holy still be holy. We prepare for the coming of Christ by persevering or pursuing in holiness. The third point of our sermon this morning, how do we prepare for the coming of Christ? Have your robes, your robes washed. Have your robes washed. Look at verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Notice what gives us the right to the tree of life and to enter the city by the gates. Having our robes washed. This image and this language speaks about the need for cleansing. We encountered this picture earlier in the book of Revelation in chapter 7 when John saw a picture, a vision of the people of God, the 144,000, which is a symbolic picture of the entire people of God. 12 times 12 times 1,000 make 144,000. In that chapter, we read the following description of the people of God. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. What gives us the right to enter the city by the gates and to have access to the tree of life is if we have our robes washed of the filthiness of sin by the blood of Jesus Christ. Friends, the cleansing of our sin is possible only through the work of Jesus Christ. Only His blood shed for us is able to cleanse that which no obedience of ours would cleanse in our own strength. It is only the blood of Christ who is able to cleanse the stain of sin that is, has deeply penetrated our nature and our, our being. And God has promised to cleanse all those who turn away from their sin and trust in Christ as their substitute, as, as the one who died and was raised again in their place. If they place their trust in Christ. Friend, have you, have you ever experienced a cleansing of your sin through the blood of Jesus? The stain of sin is so deep, so powerful that none of us by our own effort, none of us by our own, even our own act of obedience can, can remove it. It is only by trusting in Christ. 
And His blood cleanses us of our sin. If you've never repented of sin, of your sin, if you've never trusted in Christ to, to bring that washing, to bring that, cl- that cleansing over your life, I pray that you would do so today. And if you, if you want to know more what that means, what that entails, I would love to talk to you at the end of the service. The picture of a cleansed clothing reflects not only the initial cleansing that happens when we repent and trust in Christ for salvation, but the cleansed clothes are also a picture of the ongoing faithfulness. Uh, in Revelation 3-4, Jesus writes to the church in Sardis and describes those who continue a life of faithfulness as those who have not soiled their garments. Jesus says, you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. This suggests that having our robes washed refers to those who have been cleansed by the blood of Christ and continue to live a life of faithfulness to Him to reflect that cleansing that Christ accomplished. So that it's not just a a one-time decision, a one-time experience that you had when you were a kid or what, that you had when many, many time, years ago. It is a cleansing that continues to be showing up and manifesting in our lives through ongoing repentance and ongoing faithfulness. In contrast to those who have the right to eat of the tree of life and to enter into the city, John tells us who will not be allowed to enter into that city. So we spend time on telling us who is allowed to enter in the city, those who have their robes washed. But then John tells us those who will not have the right to the city. And here's verse 15. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and the murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. This is a list. This is not the only list in Revelation that we have of of those who will not make it into that new creation, into the new city that God is preparing. Who are these people? You might be surprised that the first ones are the dogs. This is not referring to actual physical dogs. Um, Though I'm not sure, there's nothing in the, we don't know if dogs will make it into heaven. Uh, But this is not referring to actual animals. This is referring to people. And to call someone in the ancient world a dog, it was a very derogatory experience or title because in the ancient world, and you might be surprised to hear this, in the ancient world, dogs were considered filthy animals. I'm sorry, folks who love pets. I really am. They were considered polluted animals. So to call somebody a dog means you're filthy, you're polluted. You have no place for that city that God is building and preparing where no unfilthiness will enter. It's referring to people who continue to live in ongoing sin and whose lives are defiled and continue to be defiled by their ongoing rebellion. The second in this list is the sorcerers, those who engage the kingdom of darkness and engage in occult practices. Then we have the sexually immoral. Anyone who lives a life of sexual immorality will be left outside of that city. Um, We'll we'll talk more in the next three sermons of what it means to pursue sexual purity. But just be clear, the the sexually immoral will not have access to that city. To this list are added those who murder. Now you might say, well, I'm a good person. I'm I'm not killing anybody. I'm not involved in sexual immorality. 
But notice the next two categories. The idolaters. In other words, you don't have to kill someone or even to commit sexual immorality to be kept out of the new city. Let's say you have kept yourself socially pure or socially moral and try to do good to everyone. And being an idolater is enough to keep people away from entering that city. When we value or adore or are committed to anything above God, we turn that object in, into an idol. No matter how good the object is, no matter how good the goal is, some of us idolize money or safety or careers or materialism or health or family or other people or we idolize ourselves. It is possible to be a very religious idolater, to worship your own spirituality, but not the God who revealed himself in the Bible. So ask yourself, is there anything or something that preoccupies you more than God, the God of the Bible? Idolaters will not make it into that city. The last category mentioned is everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Friend, simply, simply lying or practicing any other forms of falsehood is enough to keep people out of that eternal city. Lying and falsehood is brought up again as last in this, in this list because throughout the book of Revelation, the dragon and his beast use deception and falsehood to get the people of God to worship falsely. The devil is the father of lies. If we attach ourselves and we love that which is actually false, it does not matter how sincere our devotion is. Friends, a sincere devotion to that which is false is still false. Sometimes we assume that if I'm sincere in what I believe, that's going to do it. Friends, if you're sincere in that which ends up to be false, you're still not going to make it, regardless of how sincere your devotion is. So instead of loving and practicing falsehood, commit to loving and practicing the truth of God as revealed in this book. Friends, this list of categories of people who will not be allowed to make it into that city to challenge us to consider that how we live our lives is a reflection of what we truly believe. If we say that we have faith in Christ, but our lives are characterized by ongoing patterns of rebellion against God, we deceive ourselves. Remember how the book started with seven letters to seven churches? And of the seven letters of the seven churches, in five of the churches, there were people who were not preparing themselves to enter that eternal city because they were living in ways that Christ had to correct them. And in, to some of them, he gave them some serious warnings. If you don't repent of this, I'm going to come and take away the lamp. If you, don't take, if you don't repent of this, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. How can we get into that city if Christ is not even willing to keep us in? This, these, the warnings of, of the seven letters are serious warnings. How we live matters. If we say we believe something, but we live in a different way, in a consistent pattern, we might be deceiving ourselves. No wonder that in five of the seven letters, Jesus started with the words, I know your works. Jesus doesn't say, I know your faith. He says, I know your works. Jesus is interested about the works of the church. Not just about the faith of the church. 
Because the works of the church prove whether or not the faith is really real and authentic. I know your works. The works they revealed were showing that those five of the seven churches were not ready to meet Christ. Well, friends, the way to prepare for the coming of Christ is to have our robes washed and cleansed by the blood of Christ. But that is not just a one-time experience of the past. It's also an ongoing life of pursuing the faithfulness and the repentance and the life that pleases the Lord because He has cleansed us. It's a way of manifesting and displaying the cleansing that Christ has accomplished in us. The final way we prepare for the coming of Christ is to yearn for the return of Christ. To yearn for the return of Christ. We see this in, uh, in a few verses. If in verse 7 and 12, Jesus announced that he's coming, notice how the Spirit and the bride respond. In verse 17, the Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. At the end of Revelation, when, when John says it all in verse 20, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I'm coming soon. John says, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. At the end of the reading of the book of Revelation, verse 17 tells us how the whole church, after the reader spoke the book or read the book, here is a responsive reading. Here's how the whole congregation should have responded. Let the one who hears say, Come, come, Lord. In other words, we prepare for the coming of Christ by yearning for his coming. There are many things that we can do in this life that we can look forward to. We can look forward to a vacation, to finishing up a degree, to go on a particular trip, to be out of a particular season that is difficult and full of trials. We can look forward to retirement. We can look forward to times of blessedness, of, of more health. Or we can look forward to see our kids grow up or to have the ideal job. But are you looking forward to the coming of Christ? Consider the yearnings of your soul. Can you say with the Apostle John, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. What comforting words to those who have experienced the brokenness of this world. For those who have partaken of the tribulations of this world. Friends, our hope for better days or for a better world stands not in our ability to make this world better. Our yearning and longing is for the one who will bring a new heaven and a new earth. Friends, our, our hope should not be for making this land to be a better land. For the Lord to come and bring a better creation. That is a better hope and yearning. Only those who are right with God can yearn for the return of Christ. And if you find your heart in your heart that you're not ready or yearning for the return of Christ, I want to encourage you today. Deal with whatever is not right in your heart. Do not delay your lack of readiness or eagerness for the Lord's return. Lack of yearning for Jesus' return could be evidence of lack of readiness. But the invitation to come is given not only to Jesus. Surprisingly, if we keep looking to verse 17, after two invitations given to Jesus to come, verse 17 closes with these words. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. 
In other words, as we yearn for the coming of Christ, we encourage one another in our thirsts for the eternal life to come and take the water without Christ. The thirsty in this verse refers to those who have found the path of sin unable to quench their souls. The thirsty are those who desire to take the water of life. Friends, friends consider what, what you and I are thirsty for. Are you thirsting only for this world? Are you thirsting only for what is your best life now? As the title of a popular book has it. If your ultimate thirst is only for your best life now, you are on your way to hell. If you're not thirsting for something better than this life, better than what happens on this side of eternity, if you're not thirsting for what, what God promises to do beyond this life now, then you might be on your way to hell. Because you make this world to be the best you're yearning for, and that is not a good direction. The book of Revelation speaks to those who thirst and desire to take the water of life. Friends, not everyone who thirsts will be satisfied. Not everyone who thirsts will be satisfied because God did not promise to satisfy every thirst. The thirst God promises to satisfy is a thirst for the water of life. So consider what you are thirsting for. As we yearn for the coming of Christ, there is also an invitation that we give to each other. Yes, we tell Jesus, Lord, come, come soon. But in the midst of that, we also encourage one another to thirst for the water of life. We give invitations to one another to come, to thirst for the water of life and take out of it without price. One pastor said, when God says that he will give the water of the fountain of life to the thirsty, he means that he will give it to those who desire it, those who have a taste for it and long for it and have turned away from the soul beverages of the world. One of the signs that God is drawing in and calling us to salvation is that we begin, that he begins creating in us a realization of a thirst for something beyond this earthly life. If you find yourself increasingly interested and pricked about God, about the eternal life that he promises, do not try to quench that thirst with the distractions of the busyness of this life, or with the hopes and the dreams that this world promises you, come to God to quench that thirst. Don't delay. And for those of us who are believers, for those of us who have experienced and tasted of, of the water of life in Jesus Christ, we want to encourage each other to continue to come. Cultivate that thirst. As Christians, we yearn for the coming of Christ, but we also yearn that all of us who experience a thirst for the waters of life would keep coming to the one who alone can give us those waters as he will give it to us without price. In this concluding section of Revelation, we are reminded why the book of Revelation is so relevant for us as Christians. This book aims to prepare the people of God to be ready for the coming of Christ, just as Christ sought to prepare the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3 for his coming. Let us not be like the church in, in Laodicea or like the church in Ephesus or, or the church in Thyatira or Pergamum who are not ready. May we be ready as we trust this revelation 
we are told what to do to prepare for the coming of Christ. Keep what is revealed in this book. By receiving its teaching and letting it shape our lives, our life choices, our aspirations, our hopes. Worship God alone. Persevere in holiness. Have your robes washed from the filthiness of sin through the blood of Christ and yearn for the return of Christ. As we yearn for the returning of Christ, we have the assurance that until He comes, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is with us. Friends, we yearn for the return of Christ not in our own strength. It is the grace of God that helps us, enable us and enables us to yearn for the return of Christ and to prepare for the return of Christ. It's the grace of God that helps us keep thirsting for the water of life. So John closes in verse 21. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Would you close with me in prayer? Our Father in heaven, we thank you for revealing to us your plans with humanity, with this creation, and with a new creation that you are planning to bring, and with the eternal city, that glorious and radiant city that you are building up and getting it ready for us so that your dwelling place will be with us in the new heaven and the new earth. Father, what glorious truth that is. Father, we pray that you would make us ready. Father, we pray that we would live in ways that are ready for your return. Father, protect us from the, the danger of easy believism, of nominal Christianity, of thinking that a, a mere decision once uh, was enough to, to make us right with you, and then no evidence of that salvation is growing in us. Father, protect us from that kind of life. Father, we pray that the faith that you have given us, the repentance that you have enabled us to experience by your Holy Spirit through the hearing the gospel, would yield a harvest of righteousness in our lives, a harvest of obedience, a harvest of, of desiring to live away in a way that pleases you, in a way that represents you, in a way that manifests the cleansing you have done in us. And Father, we pray that you would continue to keep us in that path, enable us to continue to yearn for the return of Christ, continue to make us thirsty for you and for the water of life, so that we may be ready for your coming. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.